It's Megacon from March 15th through the 17th, 2013 at the Orange County Convention Center in Orlando, Florida. Megacon is the Southeast's largest comic book, science fiction, fantasy, anime, gaming, toys, multimedia event. The showroom has over 110,000 square feet of exhibitor space. Meet your favorite comic book artists, get autographs from your favorite celebrities, enter a costume contest, visit continuous anime viewing rooms, view the Indie Film Festival, and so much more. You don't want to miss it. One-day tickets are $24.49 in advance, $30 at the door. Or go for all three days for just $58.04 in advance or $60 at the door. I, Scott Gardner, will be there Saturday, March 16th from open to close, wandering the floor in my Two True Freaks t-shirt. Again, that's Megacon, March 15th through the 17th, 2013 at the Orange County Convention Center, Hall D, that's 9800 International Drive, Orlando, Florida. Be there. Paul, you there? I am. Oh, there you are. I was waiting on you guys. We're just yakking. Use guys. Use guys. You know, I was thinking, I don't know how we can do this. Maybe you know, Scott. Is there a way of setting up like a little soundboard? Because I know, the, you know, the whole thing to Back to the Bins is no editing. Right. But is there a way, like if I have an MP3 and I click on it, is there a way where it, where we work it into the, uh, you know, in, into the, the actual recording? I, I have been asking that same question since we started uh, Two True Freaks. There is a way to do it because one of the first podcasts I ever got hooked on was um, Half Hour Wasted, and I know that they were using a live soundboard in their show. Right, right. Yeah, I've heard them do clips that they would do. I was just going to say that because I think that they have a mixer because I know recently (laughs) what they were using crapped out and they had to buy an actual mixer to do their stuff. I would I would love to just have like I mean I, I don't want to overly produce this thing right but but I would love to just have some intro sound clips for when we do email when we do the Marvel book when we do the DC book when we do the indie book and then maybe just every once in a while throw in like a crickets or a rim shot or something <laughs> I mean if you have specific sound effects or music in mind let me know and i mean so long as it doesn't turn into a, a major production i don't mind doing that stuff but well, i i don't want to i i really my my goal is to make your your work less not more because i know you know that that was one of the reasons that you started to get burned out was having to do all of that shit i don't want to add to it i'm like i said if we can do it live where, where we just make you know we where we have the mp3s on our uh, desktop see i think that would be awesome and I've long wanted to do that, but I, I just, I need somebody smarter than I am with the technical side of this shit to, to either you know hold may, my hand. You know who may have it? What's that? Who may be the guy to ask? Ken Morgan. Ken He's Morgan or... Uh, technical shit. I, I might see uh, what, what Scott Rifen knows about it because uh, he does a, a radio show. That's, that's his actual job is he's a radio show, uh, you know, talk show host. Yeah. So he might either know about it or, you know, know somebody that knows, you know, how to, how to steer us in the right direction. So, hmm. yeah. But yeah, it's so definitely it was- something worth checking into because I've often thought that that would reduce our edit time greatly if we could do exactly what you're saying. Have that, you know, already queued up and ready to roll to where you could, you know, integrate that stuff live. That would be awesome. I definitely think it's doable. I just don't know how, you mm-hmm. know. 
See, I did something when I was talking on Skype with a friend, and uh, I was playing something, and she was hearing it, and I could when I was playing it on my end, I could hear it, and she could hear it, but I have no idea how I got that to do that. Because I haven't been able to do it since. Yeah, I've had I've been able to do it before too, just by dumb luck and happenstance, and then couldn't figure out how I did it or or recreate it so I could do it again. Yeah, yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, because I had something 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 tonight that um, I wanted to go over that it would have been nice to just play some little music behind it, like uh, manamana, do do do, right, manamana. But, uh, well, there's yeah. music behind something. Obviously, that's got to be part of the editing process. But like I said, just like a little intro drop-in. I was thinking, you know, like maybe we could find like an MP3 of Stan Lee to intro the intro the Marvel book. This book is <laughs> there, hey there, right? true believers. <laughs> yeah, you know, some uh, you know, I'm thinking there's got to be clips out there. And and then uh, I thought for like the independent, uh, we could use like a from uh, Rudolph. When they say I'm independent, <laughs> that would be awesome. <laughs> independent. Uh, and you know, and I'm sure there's some sort of drop we could use for email, and you know, and like I said, just when we're ready to do it, you just click, you know, you just click on it, and, and it's in there. That's that's what I want to get to. Wait, well, you could do your, uh, you've got mail pattern baldness thing. <laughs> you got mail pattern baldness. <laughs> that's one, that's the one, the one malady of getting older that I don't have, <laughs> thankfully. Yeah, I don't seem to have that either, but my wife seems to say otherwise. She's behind me right now. <laughs> right, honey? Hey, little ring my, in the back? She says I got a ring up there. I say it's just a double cowlick. It's not a bald spot. It's a double cowlick. <laughs> <laughs> the cow licked it both ways. <laughs> you licked it right off. See, this would be the crickets. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> Do you want to go with your uh, topic too, Bill? Or, or? Um, well, it's just a quick little um, thing that was in the back of my Game Informer magazine that I get from 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 GameStop. <laughs> it's called RPG or Florida. Basically, these are actual. Um, well, this is this is the read up, uh, or this is the write up on it. It says, if you want the craziest news headlines in North America, it's no secret that Florida is a gold mine. Role-playing games play a similar role in the gaming industry, providing more ridiculous scenarios and plot devices than any other genre. And a testament to how bonkers these two sources can be, sometimes it can be difficult to tell them apart. Read the headlines to determine which ones originate from actual news reports in Florida and which ones are drawn from role-playing games. So I've got a list of them if you guys want to take a shot. See if you can guess which ones are which ones are real from from Scott and I state, and which one are actual role playing games. <laughs> All right, first one: man steals sweet roll, hides it in pants. <laughs> Paul says Florida. Scott, what do you say? Um, that that sounds too good to be uh, not true. So I'll say yeah, that's Florida. You are correct, both of you. That's <laughs> Florida. All right, next one. Man and his dog find bronze gorilla statue in woods. Game. Mm, game, yeah. In Florida. Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> Teen and his dog uncover abandoned laboratory. Well, uh, game. Mm, could be a meth lab. I'll say Florida. Paul takes that one. Ah. 
And the role-playing game was Secret of Evermore, for any of those playing at home. Number four, Teacher Attacked by Airborne Fish. <laughs> Damn flying fish, anyway. Florida. Um, yeah, I'll say Florida. Correct. You guys are doing pretty good. Number five, Love Triangle Between Two Sisters and Adopted Brother Leaves One Dead. Hmm. Florida. That sounds like a game. I'm going to say game. Scott takes that one. All right. Damn. <laughs> <laughs> the game is Tales of Legend... Legendia. Whatever. All right. Number six. Woman refuses to leave launch pad, delays space shuttle launch. Florida. Hmm. Maybe it's that old Atari 2600 space shuttle game. Um, I'll say game. Oh, you, you win again. It is a game. All right. Which oh, game was it? It said Final Fantasy VIII. Uh, okay. Game. I want to play no more. All right, go ahead. Oh, sorry, I had to cough. Uh, number seven, alleged stabber claims he was possessed by cat spirit. Meow. Hmm. That... That's... <laughs> what? That's Florida and a game. <laughs> <laughs> there I'll is one of those in here. I'll say Florida. Yeah. That uh, is a game. Oh. Uh, so I said both, so I'm right. Yes, yes, we'll let you have that one. That is Chrono Cross. All right, number eight. Woman attacks lover after disappointing sexual performance. Every yeah, you weren't supposed to talk about that, man. <laughs> Why you gotta embarrass me on the air like that? <laughs> so I take it Florida's your answer? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, why not? Yeah, I'll go Florida too. And you guys are right. It is Florida. Number nine. Number nine. Number nine. Late night television blamed for increase in teen murders. Hmm. Hmm. Florida. Yeah, I'm going to say Florida. Game. Persona. Uh, what game? Persona 4. I think you're making these up. I'm looking right at it, dude. I got the article right here. I'll scan it if you want. <laughs> Jeez. I want proof. <laughs> I want answers, mister. It's not the Akinator here. <laughs> <laughs> All right, number 10. Woman driving vehicle 100 miles per hour claims divine forces made her do it. Ooh, Lord. Hmm. Maybe she like had to take a shit. So she's like, I'm, I'm, I don't know, Florida. Dad, it, it is, it is Florida. Uh, I think I was thinking that wasn't even quite wild enough to be a game. <laughs> 150 miles an hour. <laughs> yeah. All right, number eleven. I How am. How these damn things are there anyway? I got seventeen. Oh Seventy-five. <laughs> million questions. All right, number eleven. I am a reincarnated space traveler. Says robot enthusiast. It sounds so like a game that I'm going to say Florida. <laughs> I'll say game just to be different. It is a game. Xeno Gears. Ah. Uh, I've not heard of one of these games that you've mentioned so far, by the way. Well, I think it's the 17th without us. 
I've played Final Fantasy, but I had never finished eight. And I've played Xenogears. Uh, the other ones I haven't uh, played that are that are listed here either. So, what'd you say, Paul? I said I, I doubt that either of us will have heard of any of these. Although Final Fantasy sounds familiar, I'm sure I've heard of that at some point. <laughs> I don't think that's Final Sexual Fantasy, Paul. <laughs> Damn it! You're just disappointing me at every turn. Number twelve: Adult woman adopted by wealthy boyfriend. That sounds like a news story I may have actually seen at some time. I'm going to say Florida. I'm going to go with you on that. You are both correct. Okay. All right. 13. Large beehive. Thousands of bees threaten residential area. Yeah, that's Florida. Yeah. All right. Okay. Yep. Yep. That's Florida. <laughs> it's almost disappointing that that's Florida. Number 14. Man offers to shoot children out of cannon. <laughs> oh, I think that was a circus circus, wasn't it? I used to love that game. Yeah, game. Yeah, that is a game. It's called Secret of Mana. <laughs> <laughs> All right, 15. Sexual assault at wrestling tournament under investigation. Florida. <laughs> um, hmm. Yeah, I'll say Florida. All right, now they list game, and they list not one, but two games. But you can't tell me that's never happened in Florida. As much wrestling goes on, and there's small wrestling things down in Florida, you can't tell me that that hasn't happened in Florida, too. So we're getting a pass on that. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to throw that question out. All right, number 16. Father, assa- father assaults son's romantic rival. Game. Hmm. hmm. I'm going to say Florida. You are correct, Florida. All right. All right, and here we go, last one. Man uses samurai sword mop as weapons during altercation. <laughs> samurai sword mop? Man uses samurai sword, comma, mop as weapons during altercation. I think I saw that in UHF with Weird Al. I'm going to say game. Yeah, I'm going with game. It is a game and a Florida headline. <laughs> Oh my god. And if you got all so 17. So we, we were right on all 17. <laughs> A new car! Yeah, if you got all 17 correct, it says nice work, cheater. That was me. 14 to 16, you either play a lot of role playing games or read a lot of Florida news reports. Uh, 11 to 13 correct, you were overthinking it. You talked yourself out of a few right answers. <laughs> 8 to 10, most people get this score. Congratulations, you're boring. <laughs> 5 to 7, you could have just picked either Florida or RPG, answered every question the same way, and still scored better than this. <laughs> and 0 to 4, you are a primitive AI still struggling to understand human behavior. And that's all we have from Game Informer magazine this week. Send in the crickets. <laughs> you see, that's where we need a sound bite right there. No, I guess I'm not a cricket whistler. No, that was a terrible cricket right there. <laughs> we need Andy for crickets. But I'm bummed. Back to the bin.
right. I got the first one right for emails. Yeah, you're we didn't to even it. do like a proper intro for the show or anything. And we're just like, wow, we we're just crap tonight. <laughs> I blame you too. <laughs> blame I brought guy. my A game, man. <laughs> hey, I, I brought my magazine. <laughs> I brought a rock. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm tired. Um so hi, I'm Scott Gardner, and uh, this is the email segment of the show. I'm oh, going and this to is start... episode 101. 101, that's right. Back to the bins, 101. 101. All right, so the first email is from... Oh, wait, 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 say? wait. What? I, I am not coming to you from a uh, a hotel anymore. I'm in my house again. <laughs> Hooray! So Hooray! We can, we can all be happy that we're not going to hear you in the toilet this show. <laughs> Yes, because I don't have my laptop and I'm chained to the garage. I can only go six feet from this computer. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so our first email is from Jason Trenner. And as always, it is entitled, Not Spam! Back to the bins. I I love his titlings on these. They stand out, though. I tell you what, they don't get deleted. All right, so he uh, starts off. And I'm not sure which show this is talking. I think this must be last show. He's saying, uh, interesting episode, guys. He says, a classic John Byrne story, which, you know what? I just realized that's not going to make any sense to the listeners when I say it must be last episode, because who the hell knows what last episode they heard. The last one that you posted, which will be two. There'll be two more episodes in between that one and this one, because we have two that we've recorded that haven't posted yet. Right. So actually, that's three shows ago. So what is that? So he's he's talking about the Fantastic Four two forty eight. Right. Burnish. I don't know what episode that was though. It was ninety nine point something. Yeah, it was one of the fraction episodes. Anyway, he says interesting episode, guys. He says a classic John Byrne story, uh, which I read in the Marvel Visionaries trade, and uh, I think the last series the Eternals had was interesting. Uh, there was a series after the Neil Gaiman limited series, not not that it lasted very long, mind you, but I enjoyed it. And beyond that, I got into the Avengers during Bob Harris's run on the team. So Cersei is a character that I've always, uh, I've always felt strongly about deserving to be an Avenger. I do wonder what any of you, especially Paul, uh, feel about Bob Harris's time as writer of the Avengers. Well, let me tell you, uh, that was when I was getting back into comics after my uh, lapse from the. Uh, late 80s into the early 90s and there's a I, I could say I basically read periodic issues here and there but I never read the solid run of Bob Harris's run so I would actually look forward to sitting down and going through that because I think from what I have read of it that is an underrated period and I think people tend to just kind of lump that in with the 1990s stuff uh, that they think is bad but I really don't think it was uh when is you know, that people, i i think i i couldn't even tell you about what what issue numbers but you know when when that would be the the era when the avengers had the jackets yeah see i like black that knight stuff. was on on the yeah. team and uh Crystal. yeah that's when black knight had the laser sword i think yeah. yes yes and and that's when they crossed over with uh into the malibu and the ultra force also i think th- i think that was i think the ultra force cross was just after that mm. But I, I, you know, what what I've read of that, I've actually enjoyed. So I, mm-hmm. I do need to to make some time and and read a lot of those. And and every time we have one of these episodes lately, I add another 
group of books to my list of yeah, I want to read these, and then they just sit unread for a long time. So maybe maybe I'll get to it. I'd like to. Now, I'm still working my way through Avengers history, but um, it's it's slow going because I'm reading other projects as I do it. So it's like I'll read like a dozen issues and then take a little break and read something else and come back and like read another year's worth, that sort of thing. So I'm slowly making my way through it. So eventually. Where are you in the history now? Um, Hang on. I can tell you. You know what? I'm, I'm just uh, what, what kind of slowed my momentum was I've hit the era where there's now two Avengers books. There's uh, the regular Avengers, and then there's West Coast. So about so 1985 or so? Yeah, thereabouts, I guess. And so now I'm having to read them concurrently. Well, I didn't realize that I'd hit that era until I got to a particular story that referenced an issue of West Coast and then realized, oh, I've been missing doing these concurrently, so now I have to get caught up to where the crossover happens which means reading something like, I don't know, like, I want to say like 13 or 18 issues of West Coast or something. And I'm sorry, I know that folks really hold this stuff in high regard, but I'm finding it an incredible slog. I'm sorry. I just, the West Coast thing just isn't doing it for me. Um, but, you know, I'll, I'll get through it eventually. But the the proper Avengers book, I, I'm, I'm digging, you know, I almost always love that title. I don't know why I didn't follow it more when I was a kid. I, I really kind of kick myself now because whenever i would pick it up i'd really enjoy it but on the uh, proper book does that put you somewhere around like the the trial of yellow jacket oh I'm, I'm a little bit past that um the book that i got to was an annual it's uh let's see here what number annual is this this is annual uh let's see i'm almost done with it here it is annual 15 is where I'm at right now. So I'm uh, that's that's Avengers Annual 15, and it's a crossover with uh, with the West Coasters, and somewhere in here it made a reference to exactly what issue they were at in their book. So then it was like you know that was my clue to oh yeah well I better get read up on on West Coast then that you know the proper series must have started at some point while I was reading Avengers. So I started reading, uh, you know, the West coast book. And like I say, it's, it's just not really thrilling me, but yeah, I'll get through it. But I, you know, I have a complete series of that and I've long wanted to read it. So, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's kind of forcing me to finally sit down and, you know, and go through it. But like I say, I'm reading other things concurrently. So, you know, I kind of go back and forth. But that's where I'm at with that. Let's see what else we got here. Jason's uh, letter continues. He says, uh, next, World's Finest. He says, The Super Sun, something I know little about. And oddly, DC didn't have Chris Kent, uh, Chris Kent, a.k.a. Nightwing, and Damian Wayne, a.k.a. Robin 5, team up at all in the post-crisis era. That's a good point. Uh, he says, as for Superman Jr. and Batman Jr. speaking in quote-unquote cool teen speak, he says, oh, God. So you've seen how uh, Haney wrote Teen Speak and the Brave and the Bold lead up to the Teen Titans, and he didn't just miss the target, uh, but hit something about three feet to the left of it. <laughs> well, that's that's like you know the uh, the Marvel books where Stanley has you know eighteen year old kids calling other eighteen year old kids boy chick. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's Teen Speak, Stan. <laughs> <laughs> 
He says, uh, and when you get to the part with the sharks, man, I bet they wish they'd uh, had one of Aquaman's kids to say, hey, those guys are with me. But I guess they didn't want a future Justice League. And he says, ah, the sun, Superman's personal trash can. As for Generations 3, not as good as the first two miniseries, which I enjoyed. And I do look forward to the team, uh, excuse me, to the Two True Freaks uh, podcast on the <coughs> saga. Um That'll happen eventually. Again, I, I just don't know when. It's just a matter of uh, Mike Bailey and I uh, getting together when our, our schedules can mesh and getting that show knocked out. And for the meeting of the Blue Beetle and the question uh, before their DC days, huh, interesting. Oh, and there's uh, an additional layer to the homage of Night Owl as a character in Outsiders after Batman R.I.P. Uh, was Owlman. He says, not the evil alternate of Batman, but an uh, investigative reporter that had his own show that appeared in the 90s somewhere. So he's a bit of Blue Beetle and the question put together. Hmm. Basically, Owlman uh, was to fill the detective aspect Batman uh, of Batman, given he was dead and uh, wanted a whole team to fill his shoes. Hmm. Uh, he says, yeah, he says that was uh, more interesting than the story. Uh, it was just average. There's one limited series I want to see reviewed on Back to the Bins. He says, the 1991 Angel and the Ape miniseries. Trust me, it is a hoot. Uh, And avoid the 2001 Angel and Ape limited series as it is, frankly, immature crap. (laughs) And that's from Jason Trenner. Thank you, Jason, for the email. All right. Jason has become like our uh, most... uh prolific uh contributor now yeah he is our muse and he usually has something interesting to say so thank you (laughs) our next email is from andrew leyland which comes in response to scott's call for emails and is titled no email horrors (laughs) dearest binners i would like to say i am writing this email in anger at something one of you just said but none of you have ever made me angry, so that email had to be binned. I'm not sure what he's getting at there. (laughs) Then I thought I should email in about the latest episode, number 99 and three-thirds, or whatever you're calling it, to avoid getting to episode 100, but I haven't listened to it yet. Hey, I've been busy being a taxi for my daughter. Don't judge. (laughs) I, I know what it's like being a taxi, so... I can I can understand, and it would probably even be more difficult if you have to ride on the wrong side of the road and sit on the wrong side of the car and do it. Then I thought I should point out once more that Scott is wrong about Aunt May, but he later clarified his position by saying that she hasn't been relevant for 49 years, as opposed to she hasn't been relevant at all, and I can kind of get behind that, so I abandoned that idea. Then I thought I would email with suggestions. What would I like to hear you talk about on my favorite podcast on the Two True Freaks Network? And then I realized that I like the randomness of it, so another idea scrubbed. So, what about all that snow, eh? Hugs from across the pond in a manly way, Andy. <laughs> what, what snow? Uh, snow. Yeah, well, in, we got, by me, 15 inches or so, I would estimate. My parents live 45 minutes from me. They got 32 inches. Good Lord. You are welcome to it, my friend. You are welcome to it. 
I would uh, I would say, well, in the summer, you know, it's so much hotter by you, but it's freaking hot and humid here too. So <laughs> that doesn't actually, really give me much of an out. Actually, it's kind of unseasonably warm down here. Oh, shut up! <laughs> <laughs> well, it is. <laughs> what was it like? Seventy two, seventy five today. Yeah, yeah, that's it's what it was here too. Out today. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, it was it got it got pretty warm today. It was rainy and warm, so a lot of the snow went away. Let it snow. To, let it snow. Let it snow. I was able to park in front of my house, and you know, I I got a snowblower last year for the first time in my life, and we never had a snowfall that I could use it for last year. So I finally got a chance to break it out and give it a shot. Mm. So that was exciting. You didn't throw any small animals in there, did you? None that you know of. <laughs> Where'd the dog go? I don't know. It's just here. We have too many small animals in this house to begin with, so who's going to notice if one is gone? (laughs) (laughs) Are we ready for the next email? We are. All right. It is from J. David Weeder, and it says, Hi, I'm J. David Weeder. I do a few... Hi, Dave. (laughs) (laughs) I'm trying to be like Andy. Hello, David Weeder. Oh, I'm sorry. That's a little bit too much like Andy, I guess. Of course, I sound like one of the guys from Monty Python. Hello! Norton. (laughs) All right, anyway. I do a few podcasts here and there, which you are free to plug, which he does. uh, Doesn't he do uh, Pad Smash with uh, Mike Bailey? Um, Which other ones is he on? J. David Weeder Quiz. Da, 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 da. It's, he does da, da. that show with that guy about that, that thing. thing. <laughs> <laughs> Superman hey. Forever Radio. Ah, thank you. Yeah. And he does Green Lantern's Light. And he also does the very late and lamented The Mighty Shield, which I enjoyed, but they stopped making. Ah, uh, I hate and, when people do that. And, and when I looked on... Uh, iTunes, I was totally unaware. Those shows I knew about, but I was totally unaware that apparently he's written a novel called Smite. Hmm. But when I went to get it, my uh, the, uh, iTunes told me that my, uh, my iPod isn't, doesn't have the program to read it, so I couldn't get it. <laughs> but, but those of you who have an iPod that has the program on it, please just uh, download uh, Dave's book. Didn't he and Michael Bailey do um, Xavier's School for Gifted Youngsters podcast, too? Or am I thinking somebody else with Michael? I'm sure he was on that or not. He may have been. That was another good one that I liked. Yeah. Anyway, says I do a few, few podcasts here and there, which you're free to plug, which I think we pretty much covered that. I just wanted to drop you a line as we incrementally make our way to episode 100. Well, as now of we this know. recording, we are way past that. Okay, by one. But we finally got there. Like you, I feel a bit aged out of current comics. A lot of the time, despite reading current books, I feel like like the old man saying, Back in my day, Superman wore trunks and he was married to Lois Lane. That's the way it was, and we liked it. I found more and more solace in my long boxes. Like an old sports star, past his prime, reflecting on glory days. Oh, cue Bruce Springsteen here. <laughs> uh, no. <laughs> no, I will not. <laughs> you tell him to get off your land. <laughs> but, uh, <coughs> excuse me. 
but I'm happy, happy because there are others like me, and they make a show that is sort of therapy. What, should we charge for this? Oh, we're not alone in liking what we like, even if, even if it is Iraq's son of thunder. Maybe I'm alone on Iraq. Yeah, I think you yeah, are. Yeah. <laughs> but I want to thank you for doing God's work and keeping me out of a bell tower with a sniper rifle, screaming to the masses that Blue Devil was better in the 80s than any dribble on shelves now. I'm not trying to talk you down out of it, dude. I'm trying to talk you up into it. Take some <laughs> young whippersnapper bastards out. That's what I say. I'm tired of hearing from them. Keep it up and maybe throw in an issue of Iraq if you dare. J. Oh, David Weeder and... Well, it says he's the most well-endowed man in podcasting. <laughs> That's what he thinks. <laughs> you know, I was thinking about his comments there. And well, easy, me... easy. I thought you were going to say something else. <laughs> I don't care about his well-endowedness. Uh, but it got me thinking about this show in general. And, and what I find amusing about it is when you started doing this, Scott, with uh, Alec Berg, mm-hmm. you, know, you were the old guy on the show and he was the young kid. What was he, probably about like 20 at the time? No, he was... 17 he was young he was like 15 16 years old okay yeah he was so you were the old guy and he was the 15 year old so now right. instead of saying all right you know what scott is getting older he's getting older and he's, he's gonna get another young guy so he can keep the old guy young guy thing you became the young guy and i became the old guy <laughs> I, i'm i'm perfectly all right with that <laughs> so some somewhere along the line 45 became the young guy <laughs> Uh-oh. That means, well, I'm the young guy then. See, I went to all the nursing homes in the area, but, you know, none of, nobody... Any of you, any of you old folks read comics? <laughs> comics. <laughs> but I guess, I guess uh, Andy and Michael have taken over that dynamic of the, uh, you know, the truly young guy point of view on the books, which I kind of enjoy hearing Michael's take on it. I love their show. I, I love that they, they took that dynamic. Those bastards have never credited me once ever. They've <laughs> never mentioned that they basically picked up that idea. And maybe I'm I'm guessing that they just weren't aware of, of Back to the Bins. I, I really don't know, but yeah. For God's well, sakes, they mention you almost every single show. Yeah, really. <laughs> I'm just I'm a I'm a I'm a credit where credits do kind of guy, especially when it's my credit, you know what I'm saying? Well the next dime you get will be the first. <laughs> Scott Gardner, credit hog. I just want I just want what's due to me. I want my fair share. All right. It's Lucy Brown. Uh no, not Lucy, Sally Brown. Sally Brown, yeah. All right. It's time to get into this episode properly. You guys did you even introduce yourselves, by the way? I don't yeah, think you did. I'm I introduced me. Soon. He's Paul. I'm Scott. And somebody's Bill. Okay. So now, uh, where's the Stanley soundbite? <laughs> we need to come up with one. I wonder how much you'd have to pay Stan Lee to, you know, to say something like, "Hello, true believer, Stan Lee here." Now back to those assholes or something like. I would love. I bet that. You if you could get an audience with Stan Lee for two minutes, he would happily do it into your voice recorder. The problem Probably. is getting the audience with him. Yeah, yeah, I'm sorry. I'm not willing to wait through an entire day at a con just to meet Stan Lee. I love the guy. I respect him. You know, I, I know I'm going to kick myself for you know one day for for missing several opportunities now to have met him. But yeah, I'm I, my my con experience. I look forward to them so much, and I usually only get to do one a year, and I'm not spending that one entire day out of that year standing in a line i just you know 
I don't I don't do lines. I don't do weights. I'm a very impatient person. So I, I kind of agree, but I was willing to do it last year when my son and I went and uh you know, we pre booked our picture with Stan. And although we you know, the time we got to spend with him was, you know, the blink of an eye. But uh you know, the the wait was probably forty minutes. I mean we had a lot of plenty of time at the show otherwise. Well see that's the other thing too, is that I, I'm not willing to do that wait. And then you get up there and it's, you know, a quick, you know, step into the frame, get a picture. Okay, move along, kid. No, no. If I'm going to wait all friggin' day, I want my time. You know, I want, I mean, I'm not asking for him to go out to dinner with me, but at the same rate, you know, I mean, you know, a couple minutes to shoot the breeze and, you know, ask him some stupid fanboy question or, you know, whatever, or tell him how much he's meant to you in his life or what, you know, just whatever. But I mean, I'm not willing for it to just be a quick snap a photo and move along. That to me is. Nah, that's that's so impersonal, you know. Well, it definitely was, but that's the trade-off: is you could do forty minutes and you have a second with him and take a picture and get out, or everybody could talk to him and you wait all day. Nah, that's the trade-off. It's one or the other if you want to see him, you know. Yeah. I don't know. At Stan's age, you could probably uh, you know trade in some body organs. He's getting kind of old, you know. Oh, well, you know, <laughs> I, I got a spare kidney. When I I met Stan back in the seventies at a con. And I don't remember having to wait a long time. You know, he was the key speaker at, at the con. So he got up, he gave his speech, and then, you know, he was going to, you know, he was signing autographs. And you waited right. on the line, and everybody that come, came up, he'd, you know, spend the minute talking to them. But when and was that? I, what's that? But when was that? Oh, in the 1970s. See, that's what I'm saying, you know. So nobody was thinking, gee, you know, this might be my last chance, you know, to, to get a picture or get an autograph or whatever the case. You know, I think that's why those lines are the way they are now. I, I'm, I really got that feeling the last Megacon I went to that that's why that line was the way it was. is because everybody's thinking the same thing like, gee, you know, this, this could be it. You know, this could be my last opportunity to get up there. So, all right, I'll wait all day. Yeah. And... I mean, I, I'm not trying to sound insensitive. I mean, I realize that the guy's 113 years old. You know, I appreciate that. And he means a lot to me. I'd love to meet him. But it's just, if I'm going to meet him, I want it to be semi-natural. I don't want it to be, you know, this incredible, you know, just severely impersonal, just run up, get a quick, you know, that to me is the most, it, it's not just insincere on his part. It's insincere on my part. It's, it's so artificial and fake, you know, I'd really rather it be, you know, where I run into him in an elevator or, you know, or you catch him when, you know, there's just nobody around or in the grocery store or some damn thing, not waiting an entire day in a line to spend, you know, 20 seconds with him. Not again, 45 minutes. <laughs> it was not an entire day. But, but I, you know, it, it's the chances of me running into Stan in an elevator are virtually nil. You live in New York City, dude. He lives in L.A. L.A., New York City. What the hell? And I don't live in New York City. I live on Long Island. Long Island, <laughs> New York difference. City. What the hell's the difference? <laughs> it's, it's like across the continent. <laughs> <laughs> I, I realize that New York City and L.A. are not right next to each other. Long Island and New York City, aren't they pretty much right next to each other? Yeah, about 25 miles. All right. Wait, wait. You have to put it you, you have to put it in terms that Scott can understand. Okay, L.A. is by Disneyland. Do you now know where that is? Yes, I know where that is. Oh, okay. Now I got you. <laughs> so, wise ass. <laughs> 
but but you know the, the chances that I'm going to happen to run into Stan now that he's ninety, the chances of my just by chance running into him in an elevator somewhere Start. Are, are are pretty unlikely. Well, you guys are both old. You'll probably run into each other in the hospital or something. Yeah, there's, it's, there's a better chance I'll run into him at the dialysis clinic. <laughs> you guys can hang out. You have lots of time. <laughs> yeah, I'm here to recycle my blood, Stan. How about you? Oh, well, true believer. I'm getting my kidneys. <laughs> You're getting cloned again. <laughs> the last clone didn't take. Oh, that was hilarious and wrong both at the same time. All right. Somebody review a damn book. All right. All right. I got the Marvel, so I'm first. And we had a, a, a mail, an email. A what? Couple of, an email. Okay. A couple of episodes ago where somebody asked us to do an issue of the Defenders. And I am, I am nothing if not compliant with the wishes of our listeners. So I picked Defenders number 13 from May of 1974, which has a 25-cent cover price. The cover is by Gil Kane, and it shows the three prime defenders individually fighting the Squadron Sinister, not the Squadron Supreme. And the Hulk versus Hyperion is dead center on the cover because the Hulk was their big selling point, certainly at that time. The title of the issue is For Sale, One Planet, Slightly Used. It's written by Len Wein, the artist is Sal Buscema, inked by Klaus Janssen. Color is by Glynis Ween. The letterer is John Costanza. And it is edited by Roy Thomas. The splash page shows Nighthawk in his original costume, standing on a roof, looking at Doctor Strange's Greenwich Village home with the, you know, the house with the coolest skylight ever. And we cut inside the home where Doctor Strange is fixated with a shrunken head. The Hulk is amused by a mini gong. And Valkyrie is busy being all angsty. Suddenly, rather than a knock on the door, Nighthawk sets off an explosion at the door and comes barreling in. The Hulk comes after him, and Night Nighthawk leapfrogs over him. The Hulk comes up with the name Birdnose, and Nighthawk decides to prove he can be just as stupid and calls Hulk Lettuce Lips. Valkyrie attacks with her sword, and Nighthawk wonders why they won't listen to him. Gee, I wonder if maybe it's because you just set off some C4 without any provocation. Anyway, Nighthawk flies her in, or flips her into the furniture, and Hulk charges. For some reason, Doctor Strange decides that he wants to hear what Nighthawk has to say, and uses the crimson brands of Sidorak to stop the Hulk. Doctor Strange talks to the Hulk and Valkyrie and gets them to hold back to hear what Nighthawk has to say. Nighthawk tells them that he received a letter threatening to expose his identity and he follows its instructions and meets with the Squadron Sinister. After a lot of expository discussion, they engage in some more ex exposition. We meet Nebulon, the ce Celestial Man, and learn that Hyperion has sold him the planet Earth. Nighthawk doesn't want to go along with the plan, and Nebulon blasts him, making him immobile unless he agrees to help them. Of course, when, they, when he says yes, they, uh, they just let him loose. And they say that they need him to construct some type of weapon. So Nighthawk explains that after all of this, he attempted to contact the Avengers, but the uh, villains had anticipated this and used some sort of strange and extremely convenient power to make him invisible and intangible if he comes close to any of the Avengers. However, 
when he attempted to make contact with the Avengers, they were talking about the recent Avengers Defenders clash, and that's why he decided to contact the Defenders. He tells them that part of the deal with Nebulon specifies that Nebulon gets the planet Earth underwater, but they don't really tell you why just yet. As Nighthawk explains this, we're treated to a double-page spread of the Squadron Sinister using a machine to melt the polar ice caps and a tidal wave exploding over panicked people in Times Square. Doctor Strange agrees to help him when Nighthawk cries out in pain that the Squadron knows he's betrayed them and and he appears to explode. Before they leave, Strange decides that they need more power and sends his astral image to the Submariner, who basically tells him to go screw himself. But Strange mystically kidnaps him anyway. Valkyrie calms the Submariner down and explains what's going on. Submariner agrees to help them and they travel to the ice caps and find the squadron with Nighthawk encased in a force globe. The Hulk immediately starts fighting with Hyperion. Doctor Strange battles Doctor Prism. I, I can't even, is that, I can't even, don't even know if that's his name now. Uh, Submariner fights with the Wizard. And just in case you're wondering, the wizard's power is super speed, not super whizzing. While they fight, <laughs> he's Valkyrie... really got to take a piss. <laughs> <laughs> he's got a, he's got an extremely powerful stream, and no problem with his prostate. <laughs> I think As they make they fight... a pill for that now, wizard. <laughs> Valkyrie tries to release Nighthawk from his globe because that's what she needs to be doing. As the defenders gain, I like the to upper release hand... her from her globes, if you know what I'm saying. No, she was quite fetching. So, <laughs> as the defenders gain the upper hand in the battle with Neb, uh, with the, in the battle, Nebulon returns from wherever the heck he was and surrounds all four of them in an energy globe of their very own. They re- they reiterate their commitment to sm- to smash the uh, squadron sinister, and Nebulon says he has no choice but to destroy them all. And then it says next, and who shall inherit the earth? And that's our cliffhanger for this issue. Dun, dun, dun. See, that's another soundbite we could use right there. <laughs> so let's see. What kind of notes do I have on this one? This is We talked about this a while ago, actually, uh, when we were discussing inking, and we talked about Klaus Janssen. Mm-hmm. And I mentioned back then that I thought his work with Sal Buscema was some of the best stuff he did. Absolutely. And, and, I, and this, this, this issue, I think, is an example of exactly that. And, and considering this is before they've gotten to the modern coloring techniques, as I, as I went through this issue, I thought the coloring was kind of subtle. There are points where, it, where, it's, where I just thought she did a real nice job of having the colors be a little bit muted without having that muddy look that they have today. Uh, and, and just really, I thought the artwork popped in this book. I thought it was tremendous. I, uh, I will agree with that. What's funny is that individually, they're both artists that, would never make my top 10 list. But whenever I think of the Defenders, this is the exact art style that pops into my mind is Sal Basima and Klaus Jansen. I really liked their work on this book. I mean, not that I'm by any stretch of the imagination, any sort of expert or even overly familiar with the Defenders. I only ever read very, very spotty issues. As a matter of fact, most of my Defenders experience is with Keith Giffen's run on the book, which was right around issue 50 you know like maybe 10 issues back and 10 issues forward something like that but i really enjoy that stuff but whatever i've read 
beyond that has always been this stuff with with Buscema and uh, and Jansen, and I dig it, man. I really dig it a lot. Um, and like I say, not you know, not that big a fan of these guys, but uh, I really you know, just flipping through this book, it really brings it back to me that I really need to check out more uh, more defenders because I mean, it looks it looks just like fun more than anything else. It just looks like good old fashioned superhero dust ups and that sort of thing. And uh, you know, there's something to be said about a book where the Hulk is the snappiest dresser in the entire book. So. <laughs> <laughs> there was kind of a dynamic going on that they didn't quite define that well. There's points where they they almost seem like the Avengers in their organization, and then there's points where they totally, totally dismiss that, and and you know they're a non-team and there's no real membership and all of that. So they they go back and forth on it, but I do agree with you. It's just a fun book, uh, and a lot of it after this, after this run, Steve Gerber took over as the writer and he was just so wacky with some of the things he came up with that it, it just added to the fun. Mm-hmm. He, he, he had a sense of humor that was kind of tough to uh, like tough to figure out where he was going or, or, you know, it was very, I don't know if it was, if you'd call it dark or dry, but just had a strange sense of humor that he added to this book. Uh, let's One see. One thing I always found incredibly ironic is I always thought, that if you really went by the technical definition of the terms, I always thought the Avengers and the Defenders should switch team names because I always thought the Avengers were actually more of supposed to be proactive and, and out there actually like defending the Earth and you know protecting humanity and all that sort of thing, whereas the, uh, the Defenders seemed like they always came together when there was something had gone down and they needed to go out there and, and, and clean up or, you know, battle the bad guy or something. So they were kind of avenging in a way, you know? Mm. I that's, that's a good point, actually. But but uh, I guess that's never going to catch on. <laughs> no, not, it's a little, a little late for that now. But. So let's see. In the, as I read the story, there was really never a clear explanation as to why... Nebulon needed the Squadron Supreme, so Squadron Sinister, excuse me, or why the Squadron needed Nighthawk. <laughs> As it is, he, he never did anything for them, and they were succeeding quite well at melting the polar ice caps. So I really don't know what they needed him for, other than to stand there in a globe and, and yell at them. Yeah, but didn't he make the giant Al Gore uh, ice melting machine for him? I don't think he made it, because it seems like as soon as... He told them, yeah, yeah, I'll cooperate. And they let him out of the, you know, let him uh, go free. He immediately ran over and tried to tell the Avengers. And then when that failed, he went over to the, to the Defenders. So I don't know that he actually made that machine for them, although they talked about him making it. Mm. I remember once when I was a kid eating a box of Fruit Loops. And on the back was this mask that you could cut out and, and <laughs> fold it and everything to make Toucan Sam. And I thought, who in the hell would wear that? Well, apparently, Nighthawk. <laughs> Super villain costume, though. Right. At the end of the next issue, he joins the Defenders. And this was 13. So at the end of issue 14, he joins the Defenders. And in issue 15, he comes back with the Nighthawk costume that you know through the years. Right. Basically, as soon as he becomes a hero instead of a villain, he gets a, a more palatable costume. Yeah, he and... Uh... He and um, Hyperion both look really, you know, uh, versus what I'm used to seeing. 
look very wonky to me. But you know, Nighthawk, I like his look. It's just in this particular issue, he looks really good, except for the headpiece. The headpiece is basically, it's a combination of like Ant-Man and Havoc, and he literally has a bird beak for a nose. He looks completely ridiculous. And then Hyperion looks mental or something. He's not, he he kind of looks like the Mad Thinker. Yeah, yeah, he, he he's got the, uh, the weirdest looking bowl cut you've ever seen. <laughs> that belt. Yeah, that steel girdle, like yeah. golden girdle. <laughs> he's got. <laughs> he, and, it's, for, it's for tummy control. Hyperion's got a chastity belt. <laughs> <laughs> But he and Nebulon really need to see a barber, man, badly in this. I mean, they both got gypped the last time they they went. <laughs> uh, Nebulon, I like, I like that, I like the costume for Nebulon. Uh, mentioning about how, uh, you know, he's he hates the people of Earth because they destroyed his homeworld and all of that. So I think they went out of their way to draw him a little crazy looking. They succeeded. <laughs> There's there's no effort at all in this issue to define what Nebulon's power is. <laughs> you know, he creates energy globes. He could selectively make people invisible and intangible. He transports people and makes it look like they're exploding when they do. <laughs> but they, they like no effort to say what his power set is. Well, where exactly did the Squadron Sinister come from at this time? Because weren't they a, they they were a construct made by the grandmaster or the game master to fight the avengers right so uh, but i thought they were pulled from an alternate reality so how are they even in this book that's i mean i mean i'm maybe i'm just overthinking it my understanding is that there's actually several of them is that there was the one that the grandmaster or whoever it was came up with and then there were these guys that were basically like the evil version of them and then there was the Squadron Supreme, which were the good version of. I, I'm so I've I've yeah. always been confused. Are they actually good, and these guys are the evil version of them, or are they actually evil? And the Squadron Supreme is the good version of the evil guys. I, I I'm confused. I don't know, but yeah. I know that there are several different variations of the same team. In your yeah. Avengers meeting, you've passed the issue where they were introduced, which was Avengers number seventy, and that's where. I believe it's number 70, where the Grandmaster yeah. plucks right. them and creates them as a team or whatever. And that is the Squadron Sinister. That's when they were introduced. Right. After but didn't they go the, back to their back to the ether when that was over? No, no. No, they existed. And In fact, after this, I know uh, Nighthawk appeared in an issue of Daredevil, like issue 68, somewhere around there. Yeah, they referenced uh, it here in the book, I think. Dr. Prism was in uh, an Iron Man issue. Dr. Spectrum. Dr. Spectrum. That's right. I knew I was He uses the power prism, I think. Yeah. He's, yeah. he's the lantern analog. Yeah. And, uh, and he, a snappy dresser, too. In an issue. And I think Hyperion might have fought Thor in an issue. So they would like one appearance each, basically, after, after their initial introduction. The Squadron Supreme was introduced later. I think it might have been in an issue of the Defenders, in fact. Was either the Defenders from- or was it? It wasn't. In the early issues of the Perez um, Avengers, was it? Because I think that's mm. where I first saw them. But I, I again, I don't remember. I'm not entirely certain. I don't know. We'll have to look that up. But they they were uh, 
they were definitely the old, the, the good guy Squadron Supreme is the right. alternate version. Yeah. Uh, I've always liked this. Uh, I've always liked this, even though this is quote unquote the Submariner villain costume. That I guess at one point when he he was a villain, this is his costume that was associated with that. But I I like this one. I think it looks pretty cool more than just a you know the swim trunks. It's it, well, it was introduced in an issue of the Submariners solo comic. So he he was still a hero when it was introduced. Well, because the first time I remember seeing it was like in a supervillain team up with Doctor Doom. And, and that may just be the first time I saw it, and that's why I'm thinking that. But that's um, but that's that's where I remember seeing it. But where, where are these who are these amphibian people? I don't remember. Is it, I mean, he's, on, he, he's, he's on the Earth, right? Yeah, those are the Atlanteans. You don't remember them? Well, like, yeah, but but they're, I don't remember them being green with scales. He yeah, said, I don't remember them either. He they, says, they, with they, the amphibians they, that have come to depend on me, that would be like a frog, people. <laughs> they do look kind of sad. Especially the little, the little frog boy. They, they look, look like they've got uh, like space leprosy or something. Yeah, they look funny. <laughs> they should be in that thing that Superman was in. Right. <laughs> And uh, I think if you look in the official Marvel handbook, this is actually described as Submariner's Village People outfit. <laughs> and I got to be honest, I never liked this outfit, but I'm not the biggest Namor uh, fan in the world either. So, well, this this is this is when you know whenever they introduced a new outfit, they had to have like the the wide open chest area. Yeah, even yeah. even when uh, Robin became. Uh, Nightwing. Yeah. You know, he had that same look originally in the Perez outfit, but eventually they kind of cleaned it up a little bit and made it look cool. Yeah. And I, I call that, that trend, put a goddamn t-shirt on. That's what I call that trend. I don't, <laughs> I don't same like thing it. The Submariner outfit. Eventually they kind of got it down to the point where it looked like almost like a battle armor when they put it on. Yeah. Well, plus the vest looks like it's been made out of a, le- a leather couch too. I just, it's really bizarre looking, but... But that said, I I dug this. I got to kick. See, I like Hyperion. I've always felt that that Hyperion. I, I think he could potentially step up and and really be uh, be used more. His battles with uh, the Exiles um, were were really epic stuff. I really enjoyed that. Oh yeah, yeah. The uh, they had, mm, yeah there was a. You're talking about the recent series, right? From a few years ago. Yeah, it's about what about. Probably seven, about two thousand five, seven, eight years. Yeah, something. yeah, yeah. But I, I like Hyperion, even though this is kind of a wonky look for him. I like, even though he's the Superman analog, I like him having his own look instead of the more recent, where they try and make him look much more like Superman. Right. Yeah. You know, it, it, at least it, it, this gives the illusion of them not trying to rip off Superman. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> but in in the, I guess that was the. Uh, JMS uh, written Squadron Supreme that he that he basically started taking on the Superman look. Oh, you mean the Max series where he yeah. was? Uh, yeah. How is that? I I got most of those. It's pretty dark. I mean, it, I it started off well, much like so many of JMS's things. It started off well, and then it kind of lost its steam as it went along. I've never read it. I've heard different things about it, but I'd like to check it out one of these days. Let's just say heat vision does not go well with puppies. <laughs> <laughs> but it, and then, it, it was definitely dark, though, because I remember like the 
Ma and Pa Kent thing, they were both actually government agents who were just put up to it. And they were scared shitless. Yeah. <laughs> uh. Yeah, because basically they put him in a sterile environment to raise him as a good American or a good government boy. And um, that when he started to manifest his powers, one of the things that I remember is uh, the family dog got turned to a little a- ash outline on the wall due to the <laughs> heat, him discovering his heat vision. Whew. And then that that's when the that's when the parents were like, "We're out of here. <laughs> you can't make us stay here. No way." But I, I think our recent Comics Monthly Monday reading of Irredeemable was a better Superman analog series than the JMS Hyperion. I uh, see. I missed the uh, the most recent recording of uh, of Comics Monthly Monday. But had I made it to that show, I was actually going to talk about the fact that uh, I actually read all of that. I read uh, I read all of Irredeemable, and I read all of the other one. Uh, was it Incorruptible? And uh, I got to say, by the end of it, um, I, I dug it. I mean, I, I had to enjoy something to read the entire series. So. Despite my misgivings about it when the series started, when I first started reading through, by the end of it, I, I actually enjoyed it. I thought it was it was pr- some pretty good stuff. I would say Mark Wade is not that he's becoming one of my favorite writers. He's probably always been one of my favorite writers. But I'm coming to the realization recently that he's one of my favorites. Yeah, I like him a lot. Did you read his uh, Captain America Man Out of Time series? Yes, that was phenomenal. I really, I would love to see that as, as one of the Cap movies. I thought that was mm. great. You know, I I actually uh, met Mark Wade, although I didn't know it at the time. I was in a comic shop down in Clearwater, Florida, and this was right when CrossGens was just getting big, and he was working for CrossGen. And um, I went in, and I I was talking to the guy behind the counter as I normally did. And I'm just going on at a time I was kind of really dissatisfied with Marvel and DC. And I was like, you know, and I was just bitching about everything going on and on and say, you know, I want something new. I want something fresh, like like what Mark Wade is doing with cross gens. And then there's this guy behind me and I bought my books and then I I stood to the side side and um, this guy came up and he bought his books and then he left. And the guy behind the counter, Eddie, goes, you do know who that was, don't you? I'm like. No, he's like that was Mark Wade. I'm like, what? <laughs> Why didn't you tell me? He's like, oh no, I just thought you were making a big enough fool of yourself anyway. <laughs> but, uh, but he 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 said that Mark, you know, he was looking at Mark and you know he was just smiling the whole time, you know, just this, this idiot just rambling, you know, praising his stuff. Doesn't even realize he's standing behind him. So <laughs> that was my brush with fame <laughs> on that day. <laughs> It's almost like meeting Stanley in an elevator. Or at a dialysis clinic. <laughs> I met him, I'm trying to remember when, what, it must have been last, um, it must have been last Megacon when I met him, because he's the one that actually put me on to that series, that uh, Captain America Man Out of Time, because we were chit-chatting, and uh, and he was asking me, you know, basically, you know, what, what of his stuff did I like? You know, because I was telling nothing. him, you know, that I really enjoyed it. <laughs> and I, and <laughs> Absolutely I said, nothing. I was telling him how much I really enjoyed his his run on Cap and, you know, wish that it hadn't been interrupted and, and all of that. Um, and then somehow or other in the in the conversation, it led to he, he was like, well, you know, I came back, you know, and I thought he was talking about 
when he came back after Hero's return, and he was actually talking about when he came back and he did um, the Man Out of Time uh, miniseries, which I, I had no awareness of at all. So he kind of put me on to that. And uh, I finally tracked it down and read it and thought it was great. But he's one of those guys where off the top of my head, I really can't think of anything of his that I've read that that I didn't enjoy. Um, although some of his Superman stuff... Um, yeah, I've, I enjoyed it, but his particular view and, and take on Superman, um, you know, it, it's it's different. You know, it's different than than what I'm used to or what I like. But uh, but I still, you know, for the most part, I, I generally enjoy his stuff. But I, I thought his, his Daredevil run right now is excellent. Yeah, I've heard good things about that. But uh, his his cap is uh, is right up there for me. I think he just he understands that character in a way that. A lot of writers that have handled that character just don't seem to. They don't. They don't seem to get, you know, the hook or whatever. But anyway, well, are we ready for the next one? Yeah. This one. <laughs> this one's an interesting one. This one we're going back to September October nineteen seventy seven. Uh, this is don't laugh, <laughs> the Karate Kid. Number ten, Danielson. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, knew, I knew somebody was going to do it. This is a story called Death Duel on Orando, and I always want to say Orlando whenever I see the the name of this planet, but it's Orando. The writer on this is Barry Jameson, who uh, I'll, I'll be talking a little bit about later on. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. The uh, <clears throat> pardon me. The writer, or excuse me, the artist on this are Rick Estrada and Jack Abel, and colorist is Carl Gafford. And those are the only credits given on this particular book. We start off the book um, on the planet of Orando as... Sounds like you have a speech impediment. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to the Mother Kingdom in Orando. (laughs) Orando. It's uh, Karate Kid and his girlfriend, uh, Princess Projectra, who he always called Jackie, which just drives me nuts. <laughs> these people have real names. So if you have to shorten a ridiculously long name like Princess Projectra, then call her whatever her real name is, you know, Sally or whatever. I, I can't remember what her real identity is. I would call her Cleavage. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> So they have uh, they have arrived here. This is where she comes from, and their plan her planet is basically. She even says it herself. It's basically like old timey England, like Camelot style England. And they've just arrived there. They got a, dis- a distress f- call from her father, King Vox, which I was like, okay, that's <laughs> nice name. They've no sooner no sooner shown up there than somebody starts taking pot shots at them. You turn the page, and they're basically being attacked by the worst version of, like, Asian stereotypes that you can imagine. They're bronze-colored. They've got huge teeth. They've all got Fu Manchu mustaches. And they're using a combination of laser guns and bow staffs to uh, fight Karate Kid and Princess Projectra. Karate Kid... Um, he takes these guys out pretty handily. He has, by you know, after all, he has super karate. That's that's literally his superpower. Um, 
He finishes mopping these guys up, turns around, and Jackie, oh, I hate that, is gone. We cut to King Vox's uh, very uh, Camelot-looking uh, castle here. And this guy, Sadaharu, <laughs> is sitting on the throne. And Princess Projector is basically like, who the hell are you? And why is my father, you know, why has he been displaced on the throne? And this guy has uh, just decided to take over. Well, she doesn't want to stand for this. She wants to fight him. And for some reason, everybody else is just pussying out. And they're like, no, no, don't worry. It's, it's cool. Don't, don't do anything. You don't want to upset this guy. He's bad news. Why he's bad news, I, I, you got me. So somehow or other, Karate Kid tracks Princess Projectra to the castle. Maybe it's the only settlement on the planet. I don't, have no idea how he makes his way there, but he figures out this must be where they are. He makes his way there, and the villain dude, Sadaharu, is basically using uh, Princess Projector and her father as hostages, and Karate Kid fights his way through the minions and stuff, makes his way to Sadaharu, and then they start fighting. And they have this big epic fight, karate chops and kicks and all this stuff. Finally, Sadaharu, I guess because it's a stalemate, decides he's going to cheat and he just grabs up a laser gun and he's just going to shoot Karate Kid. And Karate Kid basically calls him out for, you know, his his honor. Basically says, you know, you can go ahead and gun me down, but, you know, that's not a very honorable thing to do. And this works for some reason. The guy's like, oh, you know what? That's really not a very honorable thing to do. So what are we going to do? How are we going to settle this? They have some sort of longstanding beef that I didn't really understand or, frankly, give two shits about. But the... Uh, I don't know what this guy's role is. He's like advisor to the king or vizier or dude that hangs around or something. He looks to me a lot like Angar the Screamer, so I got a real kick out of that because he's one of my favorite goofy-ass villains. Anyway, this dude says, uh, I have an idea how you guys can settle this. So we get a whole lot of exposition, a whole lot of talking, and finally it made sense about what, kind of the backstory of this series is now i knew that the basic conceit of the series of karate kid which i'll be honest i think i've only ever read one other issue of ever had something to do with karate kid traveling back to our time and he was actually having adventures in the 20th century i don't know if it was the specific year of the publication date but i think it was supposed to be i think they were supposed to be concurrent adventures with um you know, the DC universe at the time, something like that. But I never really understood the whole story or reason of it. This explains it as basically King Vox knew that eventually because Princess Projector and Karate Kid, you know, they, they dig each other and everything, that eventually, more than likely, Karate Kid was going to come asking the king for her hand in marriage. And because he's just, you know, he's just a peasant, the king wanted him to basically prove himself. You know, he had to prove his worth and prove himself worthy of uh, of marrying the princess. So the king gave him a mission, which was to travel back to the 20th century and go on adventures that the king could watch through this, I don't know, this like crystal ball type of thing. 
which I think is pretty creepy to be watched by your girlfriend's dad constantly, everything that you're doing to be judged worthy or not. I think that's just pretty bizarre. But that's pretty much the story up to this point. Scott, you obviously don't have teenage daughters like I do. <laughs> mm. <laughs> that's all I got to say right there. Yeah, I'm, I'm willing to send any boy who wants to date my daughter back in time. <laughs> yeah, he's not going to come forward. <laughs> So the big plan for how the uh, Karate Kid and uh, what's-his-face, the name I can't pronounce, how they finally uh, are going to settle their thing is they're going to battle on this platform that's suspended over liquid oxygen. And if either one of them falls off or gets caught in a, in a burst of the uh, gases, then they're going to freeze solid. So they, they go into their little karate fight. And they're duking it out, blows back and forth and everything. But eventually, through duplicity on the part of the uh, the king's advisor guy, the little bridge that led over to this, this little island in the, the liquid oxygen that they're fighting, and the bridge has been taken out. So they can stay there, and they can fight, and they'll both die. Or they can put aside their differences, they can team up, and they can build a human bridge to get back across... <laughs> To the other side. So, of course, that's what they decide to do. They get over there. They confront uh, Aaron is the guy's name. He's the, the king's advisor. And, and Princess Projector is basically like, why, why the hell did you do that? You know, you, you put my boyfriend in danger and everything. Why, why would you do that? And he professes his love. He's always had the hots for her because her tits are hanging out. And he just thinks she's awesome and everything. And uh, she's like, well, I'm sorry, but uh, I like the Karate Kid. So the best part of this entire issue is where the king says, Hey, Karate Kid, I really, I really appreciate you saving my kingdom. You saved the day. You're an awesome dude. Oh, by the way, go back to the past. And the Karate Kid's like, are you freaking kidding me? I just saved your whole planet, dude. He goes, doesn't that prove something? And the king turns his back on him and says, of course it does. But we had an agreement. <laughs> and the karate kid just goes, well, swell. <laughs> so the issue ends with uh, him proclaiming his love for, uh, for Princess Projectra. And we're told in the next issue box that he and the princess are going to have a little uh, battle with the Fatal Five in the next issue of Superboy and the Legion of Superheroes. But then after that, it's back to the 20th century for the karate kid. And that's pretty much where the issue ends. Now, um, I don't want to be overly critical because, uh, surprise, surprise, Barry Jameson was actually a pseudonym for David Michelini. Now, I, I hmm. didn't pick this issue with that in mind um, or anything like that. But when I saw that name, I knew who he was because I had read it recently. Um, but I didn't pick it, you know, purposely or anything you know if you listen to other shows that i'm on uh, we recently interviewed david michelini on star wars monthly monday but again I, I didn't pick this with that in mind but that in mind i don't want to be overly critical of it but there's really no other way to say it this issue's pretty bad it's it's really it really doesn't have a whole lot of redeeming qualities it's very um by the numbers comics um oh i think page six has got some redeeming qualities Page six, page six. Oh, I bet you I know what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. Well, she does have two <laughs> redeeming qualities. Yeah. Two redeeming qualities. She does. 
But uh, beyond that, yeah, I mean, in fairness, you know, you would really have to do something incredible to make me think that a Karate Kid story was anything worth writing home about anyway, because I love the Legion of Superheroes. I'm a huge fan of the Legion of Superheroes. But because that team is so massive, I mean, they've got more members than the X-Men, for God's sake. So, you know, once you get past, you know, Superboy, the kid that can juggle planets and the kid that can shoot lightning and the kid that can, you know, has magnetism like Magneto and, you know, the kid that can become any creature and the kid that's super invisible and the kid that can bounce... Then you start really scraping the bottom of the barrel when you've got the kid with super karate. (laughs) And it's like, why the hell did they pick him to be the one to get his own book? I've never understood that. There are are some Legionnaires that are pretty pretty cool, pretty awesome, that really I, I could see them getting you know, uh, an ongoing or a mini or, or something like that, maybe spinning off into their own title for a while. I could tell you why. Why is that? Because in the 1970s, when this book came out, kung fu movies were hot. Uh, mm, so of, course, of course, yeah. Of course. What I find incredibly ironic, though, is, and I'm not sure how, you know, this may be, extremely common knowledge among comics geeks i don't know but what's really funny is when they made the karate kid with ralph macchio the producers of that movie actually paid for the royalty rights for the dc comics character karate kid so that they wouldn't get i guess so they wouldn't get sued or so that you know there wasn't any you know dc wouldn't come back on them later or anything like i just find that incredibly funny because then years later you know, after that movie became, you know, such a pop culture thing and that, you know, the constant references with, you know, wax on, wax off and all that sort of thing that started popping up in Legion stories. I can remember that when the cloned version of of Superman, you know, the Superboy, the post-crisis Superboy had adventures with the Legion in the 30th century, he would tease uh karate kid with those references that of course they didn't understand they had no idea what the hell he was talking about but he amused himself that way and i always got a kick out of that you know it was a nice little circular piece of whatever history or continuity or whatever but uh yeah i thought this issue was uh it was just plain goofy top to bottom and Wow, you know, you talk about your racial stereotypes. I mean, not so much in their actions, but definitely in their looks. I mean, everybody's Fu Manchu. Which, if if you go back to the top of page six. Oh, yeah, I had a note on that. <laughs> wow. <laughs> That's incredibly bad. Yes. Yeah, the, the buck teeth. and <laughs> oh. they, they do wear very cool hats, though. <laughs> Where the hell do they get these hats? Especially the one with the two tassels. What the hell is that? It looks like a cross between one of those folded napkins you see in fancy <laughs> restaurants and like like a conquistador hat. <laughs> yeah, it's it's bad. It's really really bad. Is nothing but strings holding her outfit together? Yeah, pretty That's much. That's a good fighting outfit. Yeah, real. If you're going yeah. off to battle, that's the kind of outfit you want. There are 
um, a lot of images of. See, I'm. This is one of the reasons I think that I am such a big fan of seventies uh, era Legion stories because there are a number of the girls on the team back in these stories where my teenage brain could imagine the titty popping right out, you know, because of the, the nature of the outfit. You look on page two, that half a splash, you know, double splash page right there. That looks like oh, she yeah. moves just a little bit more. She's going to, she's going to have an, uh, what do you call it? Wardrobe, wardrobe malfunction right there. You know, it it's but, almost looks like she was drawn naked and that he let the Inca put the uh, right. outfit on it. <laughs> right. I wouldn't be surprised. I would not be surprised. Now, I think, if I'm not mistaken... And, and if I, think, I was an artist, that's what I would do, by the way. Well, I think that Grell came up with those outfits anyway, didn't he? I, I'm pretty sure. I don't know about... Either, either Grell or Cockrum, I would say. Yeah. But uh, I never particularly liked her as a character, but I definitely liked her look. She's kind of got a little bit of a Sabrina the Teenage Witch vibe. Yeah. Mm. Well, plus, she was always one of the bitchier women on the team, too. She was never one of the... Well, she was a princess. Yeah. Don't oh, talk true. bad about Jackie. <laughs> <laughs> Jackie. Got a thing for her, do you? Uh, I, uh, it's, I don't think she actually ever had a real personality, so I don't know. No, she did not. But uh, the two things that I noticed was uh, Vox, which is actually like Vox. Right. <laughs> it's, it's V-O-X-V, so right. that's how I pronounce it. Uh, he looks like the Winter Warlock from Santa Claus is Coming to Town. <laughs> <laughs> yes, he does. <laughs> what? Oh, yeah, the king? Yes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Who was voiced by, I believe, Keenan Wynn? Yes. Don't ask me why I know that. <laughs> was, was, that was awesome. <laughs> That's why you know that. Yes. And then uh, Sadaharu. Sadaharu. Back when this came out, would have been right around the time when Sadaharu O was setting the Japanese record for most home runs in a uh, baseball season. And I wonder <laughs> if that's where they got the name. Hmm. I don't know. He actually had more home runs in Japan than Babe Ruth had in the United States. So there was a debate in the 1970s as to who the true home run champion of baseball was. And it would have been right around this time. So That reminds me of something. I'm just flipping through the issue, and I just remembered something <laughs> that I had a big issue with in this in this comic was the part where Jackie uses her ring to escape. Now she puts her Legion flight ring onto the bad guy that comes into the prison cell to give her dinner. She puts the ring on him, and then using her her willpower over the ring flies him into the ceiling and knocks him out. Well, don't all the Legionnaires have a flight ring? Mm-hmm. So Karate Kid is never really in any danger at all during this fight, right? Well, his sense of uh, fair play, uh, you, you didn't see that we had to remove it before he went across the bridge. Oh, for God's sake. <laughs> uh. It's a good point. <laughs> It's just, it's one of those things that makes me crazy in old comics like this where heroes would conveniently forget that they had certain abilities in the hopes that kids just wouldn't notice that, wait a minute, Superman could have just flown away at any time or, you know, that sort of thing. 
You well, had the power to go home all along. Right, exactly. Well, I'm, lo- I'm looking at the close-up at the bottom of the last page, and they show both of his hands, and I do not see a ring. So maybe well, you he know, wearing it. Yeah, if you go, I'm, I'm not trying to take us back to page six, but if you go back to page, <laughs> page six with the first panel over on the left, he's climbing that, that rock face. He's not flying. Right. Yeah, he doesn't have the flight ring. Well, maybe, maybe he took it off when he went back to the 20th century and just never put it back on. Maybe somebody realized that some of the Legionnaires, despite the fact that they're all supposed to have the flight ring, some of them look flat out friggin' ridiculous when they fly, and Karate Kid would be two or three of them. So maybe that's it. I, I don't know. but Yes, but if you go back to page six, there's a picture of Princess Projector that looks sexy. <laughs> <laughs> and I think the, the story is if you're going to pick up this book, it's all because of page, page six. six. Yeah. And don't pick it up for the cover because it's false advertising. Superman's nowhere in here. Superboy's nowhere in here. Oh, you know what? I totally forgot to talk about the ridiculous cover on this. I, I really, I hope that uh, David Michelinie didn't write the cover copy for this because, now granted, this was back you know during a time when the cover often had not a goddamn thing to do with the contents of the book, but this is a really a bad offender here because you got Sada Haru kicking Karate Kid right in the face and it looks like he's going to take them both right off the ledge into the uh, liquid oxygen. Superboy is holding back the entire rest of the Legion and saying, stay back. Even if Karate Kid dies, at least he'll have his revenge. What the hell are you talking about? Karate Kid doesn't have any beef with Sadaharu in this entire issue. The whole thing is because Sadaharu has an issue with him that, again, I didn't understand or give a crap about. If he's dead, how's he going to have his revenge? Right. I mean, really? You're going to. Is he going to? Is he going to pull him over with him when he falls into the liquid oxygen? What's? I don't get it. Besides the logo of the book. The largest print on the entire cover says featuring the Legion of Superheroes. And they amount to, let me see, there's If you don't count Jackie, I think they're in one panel. Two panels. You got the panel on page 14, top panel, where you've got everybody but Superboy coming into the panel. And you get, um, let's see, Lightning Lad, Phantom Girl... On the top of page 16, that's it. That's all you get. And there is no, you're right, there is no Superboy in this issue at all. Unless you count the uh, Sky Heroes ad, which I love. I used to love these ads because generally the art was pretty good. But again, this is where, to my child brain, all my action figures played together. And this is why. Because in these old ads... It didn't matter if you were a Marvel or you were a DC. In the ads, you got you all got to be together. So you've got the Sky Heroes and you've got Superman, Spider-Man, Batman. And it says Cap America. They didn't even spell his whole name out. It just says Cap America. But I love that. It's awesome. Plus it has Shazam as a belt buckle, which is pretty cool. And a t-shirt. But that's all I got on this. Um, it was crap. But it was fun. Page six was fun. <laughs> <laughs> Is your issue stuck together by any chance, Bill? 
No, because it's on a screen. <laughs> oh, okay. You can just wipe that shit right off. Yeah. It's, it's not set together at all, but my mouse seems to be some problems. <laughs> I have a problem with my mouse, though, yes. I got a rollerball. Oh, sorry. <laughs> it's well duplicated. <clears throat> Excuse me. All right, on to the next Stop book. <laughs> balls and get on with the next book. Yeah, I'm not in a hotel room with all my lubricants and oils in my bathroom anymore. <laughs> Smoking jacket. Smoking jacket, yes. All right. My book, the the indie, the independent, I don't know what we would have for a drop here for I, the, I already I told you we gotta get what was a, one? What's going to be the uh, indie? Rudolph and, and uh, Hermie saying, I'm independent. Oh. <laughs> independent together. <laughs> I'm just a misfit. All right, we have Grimjack, number six, from First Comics, January 1985. Uh, title of this book, uh, the uh, title of this story is called Shadow Cops Part 2. And why is my mouse not working? <laughs> Jesus. Hey, solve that mystery later. It's because okay. of page six. <laughs> there we go. There we go. I got things working again now. Anyway. All right. This is Shadow Cops Part 2 Over the Line. Uh, John Ostrander is the writer. Tim Truman is artist. John and Kathy Workman letterers. Janice Cohen is the colorist. Mike Gold is the editor. Uh, we open up with a group of uh, armed police waiting on a road for two men on a motorcycle that are driving towards them. Uh, the police are the TDP, the Trans-Dimensional Police of the City of Sinosher. And the two men are Grimjack, who's a mercenary, gun for hire, and another gentleman named Nolinsky, a bike cop whose beat covered the desert outside the city. Uh, the reason they are here is that Jim Gra- bleh, Grimjack agreed to look into the death <clears throat> of Hubi Burke. Burke was a nephew of Grimjack's former partner in the TDP, uh, which is the Trans-Dimensional Police, and his name was Roscoe. No, and it's not P. Coltrane. Grimjack had gone out to the dead-end station in the desert where he met Jericho Nolinsky. The two of them tangled with some thugs who blew up the station along with themselves. From there, the trail of Hubie's death led back to Snowshire and Jericho came along, which is where we are now, where they're re-entering in- into the city. So here they are running straight into the TDP, the Trans-Dimensional Police. And they blame them for the deaths of the guys in the desert who were actually off-duty Trans-Dimensional Police. Grimjack and Jericho banter about how to ditch the the TDP. The chase goes from street to rooftop to stairways and through tour bots, which are <laughs> it's been a while since I've read this series. I don't know if these are actually people inside these little rolling garbage cans or, or what. Um, at one point, Grimjack tells Jericho to go straight across a particular street. Once on the other side, the bike stalls and rolls to a stop. The cops pull up behind them and draw their guns and open fire. Jericho is obviously disturbed by what is about to happen, but Grimjack explains to him that Sinosher is made up of different dimensions. Physical laws on one block don't always work on the next, and it helps to know in this, where you are in the city. So they have rolled into a dimension where the laws of momentum work differently. He demonstrates this by picking up the stopped bullets that are floating in the air from the TDP's guns 
and he Jim Grack, uh, Grimjack grabs them and tosses them back across into the neighboring dimension where they regain their momentum and basically take out the cops. It doesn't look like they kill them, but it does screw them up so they can't follow them. Um, as the two turn to leave, a large black sphere bounces down the alley towards them, and I kind of like the sound effects here. Yoga, yoga, tugga. <laughs> and uh, Grimjack says that they're about to be hit by by a snowball and says that they're in luck. The ball, the, uh, the ball descends over them, splork, and carries them up and away. Foomp. Um, inside, there's total darkness, and uh, Jericho's nervous about what's going on. Grimjack strikes a match to reveal that the two of them are now beavers riding a giant frog in outer space. Snowballs are, in fact, a rolling pocket dimension with their own separate reality inside. So after they roll the ride the snowball down to uh, Roscoe's office later downtown, um, they try to ID the guys that were out in the desert. And um, apparently Roscoe's nephew, Hubie, got involved with stealing PRGs, which are portable reality generators, devices that allow weapons to function in any part of, of the city, regardless of how the laws of physics or magic operate in those areas. Um, however, it turns out that Hubie was just the patsy who took the fall for the theft and Roscoe and Grimm decide that it must have been the Shadow Cops, which are an elite undercover group in the TDP. Um, Roscoe knows that they report to Lillian Seffington, a deputy commissioner in the TDP. Grimm and Jericho head out to check on uh, some other sources, while Roscoe does a half-hearted, uh, wait, don't go, I'll shoot, bang, damn, must have missed. <laughs> Trying to do his duty as a cop, you know, like he really cared. Um, Grimjack has connections with a group named Cadre. Their mandate is to deal with any and all threats to the city, so they often come to butt heads with the TDP. Um, Grim, Grim was in Cadre and in its early inception and still has links to it. They meet with a Cadre member named Hoot Gibson, who has a file on the Shadow Cops. Jericho is able to ID the ringleader um, who was basically the guy behind the theft of the PRGs, the portable reality generators. They next head uptown to Snowshire where all the beautiful people live, all the lovely, happy men and women and rich people of Snowshire. Um, they head to Lillian Seffington's place to tell her about the bad apples in her, in her um, midst. Um, and there seems to be some type of underlying tension between uh, Grimjack and, and her possible stuff happened in the past, romance, who knows. Uh, it's been a while since I read all these. Grimjack explains that he and Jericho were not responsible for the deaths in the, in the desert, nor the theft, and that and it was her people who were responsible. She refuses to believe him, but offers him a five-minute head start for old time's sakes. Grim bows before her, saying that he will take his leave of her, and then cold cocks her in the head and throws her over his shoulder. <laughs> stating that she was always too trusting. And next is the conclusion. Now, there's also a backup story. I don't know if uh, you guys sh should have this, I believe. It's, uh, it's in, in, um, in the Grimjack books, uh, there was always backup stories called uh, Munden's Bar. And actually, first comics used to branch over other characters they had 
Munden's bar is where you would see in the background, you would see like other versions of Iron Man or other companies' characters just drawn slightly different so they wouldn't get sued. And then um, I believe it was like issue 26 was a big one that actually had the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles in the bar as well. But this backup story is basically about a guy who's uh, been down on his luck, gets out of prison, and while he was in prison, he got these little tiny lizards who can sing and dance. And he's telling the bar owner about how his life's going to change and these guys are going to make him all this money. And while he's talking to the bar, this other uh, uh, reptile, larger human-sized reptile guy apparently eats his little reptiles that were singing in the band. And he threatens the guy. He's, he's you know you ruined me. This was my big chance to go straight and everything. And the guy starts offering him all his money, everything he has on him, his clothes. And finally the guy, you know, calms down and he leaves the bar. And then the little, uh, amphibian guy looks over shoulder. Then he looks back and he pulls out from on underneath in the three little, uh, um, guys that were singing, you know, basically said, okay, so anyway, as I was saying, with the proper management, you guys could be great. <laughs> so it was a whole big scam that he, he, you know, whereas they thought he ate the three little guys, he was actually stashing them so that he could make, make money on them in the end. So that's what I got for this issue. Now, uh, are either of you guys familiar with, uh, with Grimjack? Not me. All right. Scott, how about no, you? No, I'm really not at all. All right, I found a uh, I found a, a a blog actually when I was looking for just a little background material. This Grimjack for me was the first ex- foray that I ever had into any independent comic books. Uh, when I was buying comics back in the uh, back in the well, this would have been about the uh, the mid '80s because this came out in like this started to come out in '84. And this issue actually came out in 85. Um, this was originally a, a backup to um, a book called Star Slayer. It was Grimjack was a backup story in that and then expanded to its own series. Um, and I've got those original ones and actually I have them signed by Tim Truman. It's like it was about the first 12 issues of, of Star Slayer. And he's a pretty I- interesting character. I mean, it's, I think the the run was about 85 issues before First Comics went into bankruptcy. And then back in 2005, they came out with some other stories. I mean, I would definitely t- take a look at it, you know, if you're, if you're interested in a character that, you know, the city of Sinosher itself is, is really a character unto, unto itself because it's, they can go any, you know, many different dimensions meet in this city and there's many different types of stories that they do in there, you know, with technology, uh, magic, etc. Um, one of Grimjack's sidekicks that he has is a small, I guess lizards are a theme in the book. There's a small lizard called Bob that is always bumming cigarettes off of people. Uh, he's a recurring character. I mean, it's, it's a, it's a gritty story, uh, for the art with me. I know that, Sometimes, you know, people might say that Tim Truman's art gets a little repetitive, you know, that a lot of the characters kind of have the same facial features. But you could say the same thing about John Byrne's art as well, that a lot of his characters. No, you can't. Yes, you can. (laughs) You leave John Byrne out of it. I will not. (laughs) I mean, a lot of the people in the story all have the long face and the big nose. I mean, but but still, 
I like the book. What do you guys say? I uh, I don't know a whole lot about Tim Truman. Um, most everything I've I've ever seen of his, though, um, you know, I I, I generally like. Um, I know he he's also done some writing too. Uh, I picked something up a while ago. This is actually it's got to be several years ago now, just because his name was attached to it. I was in a uh, a Salvation Army. This is back when I lived in uh, in Georgia before I moved down here to Florida, and uh, you know I was in a Salvation Army hunting comics, and uh, and I found this. Um, I, I'm not sure exactly what it is. I guess it's a graphic novel, and it was put out by uh, Four Winds Publishing Group, which I'd never heard of, and. Uh, you know, I saw the art on the cover, and I thought it was either Tim Truman or Mike Grell, because sometimes I think their art is very similar. And uh, and it was by Tim Truman. It's called Wilderness, the True Story of Simon Gertie, Renegade. And this is uh, book one. And I was just flipping through it, and it looked really interesting. It looked like, uh, you know, stories about... Uh, like frontier, like early American frontier life and, you know, Indians and that sort of thing. And, you know, it was just, you know, it was, I think I paid a dollar for it and I figured it, well, if nothing else, if I don't like it, you know, I'll turn around and resell it or whatever. I, I still haven't made the time to read it yet, but I'm very curious to check it out because it, it looks very interesting. You know, the art is really good and, uh, and I've read some online reviews um, or, you know, looked at some online reviews just to see what people were saying about it and all. It's supposed to be some pretty awesome stuff. But my understanding is that his big claim to fame or, you know, the big thing that, that people remember him for is this Grimjack thing, um, which I, I have to profess complete ignorance about. I mean, I, I know the character just to look at him. You know, if I, if I saw him on a page, I'd know who he was, but I know nothing of him beyond, you know, he, he has a very distinct look and all that. Um, but I gotta be honest with you, flipping through the issue, you know, the, the art's nice and everything, but at the same rate, as I flip through this, the very first thing that it puts me in mind of is 2000 AD. And I know I'm going to take flack for this, but I don't like those kind of comics. It's just, it, it's nothing, you know, it, it's no reflection on those kind of comics. It's just not my bag. It's way out of my comfort zone as far as comics. I, I like, I, I like capes. What can I say? So, yeah, I, you know, I, I've never checked it out, um, nor am I particularly inclined to. I just have to be honest. Yeah, I'm. You know, you kind of hit on it for me there. Uh, I actually like the Star Slayer books. In fact, we covered one a couple of months ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, I liked that. And even with having those issues, I never read the Grimjack backup stories. Uh, it just, ne- for whatever reason, it just never caught me. And then trying to read this one, it just. I don't know, it just lost me in the translation and it seemed too convoluted to me to, to like I was having trouble following the story, uh, which is probably a poor reflection on me, but whatever the case may be, I just it never like grabbed me and pulled me in. Well, I did kind of drop this in the middle of, of a storyline, um, but I kind of did that because I wanted to show the uh, one of the things about the city, about the different dimensions and how you could have, you know, 
because on the page where you have the bullets are traveling across the street and they basically stop in midair. That was one of the, one of the reasons that I picked that just 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 to demonstrate this and the and with the snow little pockets that roll down the street that you know could you know that that was one of the reasons I picked this one. So it might have been a bad choice, and it is that's why I kind of tried to summarize what had happened in the previous issue in the intro to it to get 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 you know get people up to speed as to why these people were where they were. Right, right. No, I mean, it's it all depends on, you know, what your cup of tea is, I guess. I, I'm not saying it's a bad issue. It just wasn't my, to my tastes. Uh, the artwork, I thought the artwork was okay. I wouldn't compare it too much to Mike Rell. I like Mike Rell a lot. I thought this was this, okay. I, I didn't yeah. think it was as good as Mike Rell. After I said that, and then I was flipping back to the issue again, I was kind of like, why did I say that? But if you uh, if you look at uh, at an image sometime of this cover that I'm talking about to, to Wilderness, uh, I think you'll see the similarities there um, with him and Grell. But yeah, in this particular issue of Grimjack, I'm looking at and I'm going, ah, I don't see Grell. I actually see more of um, like Keith Giffen. I think it looks very similar to Keith Giffen and all, you know, like like modern day Giffen. Cause I think uh, Giffen's another one that kind of went all 2000 AD there later in his, in his career. I but, think uh, like Mike Grell, I, I compare in a lot of ways to Neil Adams. Mm-hmm. And, and I mean, I, I give the nod to Neil Adams, but you know, Mike Grell in his own right, just to be compared to somebody like that is, uh, you know, is a great thing as far as I'm concerned. Right. Uh, and you know, so he'd, he'd be on my, He'd be somewhere on my all-time list. I don't know exactly where he'd fall. Uh, you know, again, uh, this is good artwork, but it wouldn't be anywhere near that high for me. Well, I was reading something not long ago. It's probably Back Issue magazine or something. But I was reading something about the history of first comics, and uh, and I know that those guys, when they started having their their financial difficulties and everything, that uh, one of the things that they really regretted was what it did to uh to this book because you know this was one of the the favorites of the guys you know behind that imprint and everything so i mean like i say i've heard nothing but good things about it just uh it's not really my bag well uh <laughs> so i think it was, was it last issue we we kept joking about torak right yeah <laughs> Uh, he wrote virtually. I'm just reading some stuff. He wrote virtually the entire run of Torok Dinosaur Hunter for Valiant Comics. So all those uh, boxes of uh, going to the dumpster. <laughs> and Mr. Bailey was telling us about. Right. I guess it also says he uh, at DC Comics he created Hawkworld, a reinvention. This was in 1989, a reinvention of Hawkman. Mm-hmm. Um, I collected. I don't see it on here. I know he had a. Oh, there, there it was. Uh, a series called Scout, which was supposed to be. I can't remember what company that was for. It's not really saying here, but maybe maybe Scout came out got out again later with uh, for Image because I know that was like his solo project. Right. I've got that somewhere, but I couldn't find it. So. What's funny to me is I think a lot of his characters do look very, very similar, though. Not necessarily 
uh, in the face, although that does sometimes happen, but just the general look of their outfits, because I think Grimjack looks a lot like his Jonah Hex, which looks a lot like his Scout, which looks a lot like this Renegade character. So they, they all have, it's like they all went to the same shop to get their outfits or something. You know, they all, they're all slight very variations on Tim- the same kind of like, I don't even know what you would call this. It's like, like a cross between grunge and Prince or something. It's really weird. Tim Truman did Jonah Hex. He did some of the mini series where there was a, there was a reimagining of Hex. This was, this would have been the nineties. I'm not sure exactly what year, but there were two or three mini series with Hex. Um, this was well after like Jonah Hex ended with the number, I think it was 92. And then there was a short-lived series that ran, I think, 18 issues where Hex was stolen out of the Old West and, and put into, like, a Mad Max future. And oh. then after that was canceled, the character kind of languished for a while. And then Truman brought him back in a series of miniseries. But it wasn't really Jonah Hex, if you know what I mean. I mean, it was... You know, it was the character in name, but almost everything was different. He had a completely different look. You know, he didn't still have the the Civil War getup and all that. He looked very much like, uh, almost like a frontiersman, like uh, like Daniel Boone or something. And it was very different. I, I've read bits and pieces of it. I've, I don't know that I've ever read any of the, uh, the minis in their entirety. Again, I, I didn't really care for it because... It was just, it was very bizarre. It wasn't even so much that it was different um, from a Western aspect or anything like that, but he brought in like aliens and other dimensional crap. And I was like, wow, this is really some strange shit for Jonah Hex, you know? So I don't know, but that's coming from somebody who actually enjoyed the adventures when he got pulled to the future. So, you know, what do I know? But He was the penciler on that. He wasn't the writer. On the the miniseries stuff, it's like Jonah's Riders of the World, such in '95. Right, yeah. Penciler, Jonah Hex Shadows West. Right, yeah. Who who do, who was the writer on that? Uh, hold on, let me see if I can find out. I'm looking on. Because uh, I was thinking he he wrote and uh, wrote and uh, drew that, but I guess I'm wrong. But like I said, I, I never really got into it all that much. I've got it as part of my collection because I have all the vertigo. Oh, Riders of the Worm and such, and yeah. it, um, Joe R. Lansdale was the writer. Oh, that's right. Yeah, that's right. I forgot about that. Yeah, didn't didn't care for that stuff too much. But that's about the extent of my uh, <laughs> my experience with Tim Truman. <laughs> oh, we're not going to leave it lie there, are we? <laughs> I think we need Mike's uh, yell that we're out of bandwidth. <laughs> well, we could talk about the fact that uh, I went through and read um, from last episode we were reading Superman versus Terminator. Uh-huh. I had messaged you on Facebook saying that, uh, hey, guess what Superman does with all the Terminators? Right. <laughs> I got a kick out of that because I can't believe I forgot that. Well, well, what do you think he did? He throws them all into, the, into sun. the sun, baby. Right, he got them all together and threw them into the sun. That's <laughs> awesome. They had deactivated. He balled them up with all the, the whole Superman family got got together and chucked them in the sun. 
That's awesome. That, I love Superman. There was love a, when he throws things into the sun. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Now I think we're out. All right. Way to, way to keep it short, guys. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Jesus. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to our show, and we hope you'll join us each and every week for more good old-fashioned comic book back-issue awesomeness. You can contact Back to the Bins to leave feedback, comments, questions, suggestions, and criticisms via email at backtothebins at gmail.com or by visiting the Two True Freaks section of www.forumforgeeks.com. Back to the Bins is produced in association with the Two True Freaks podcast, which you may find at www.twotruefreaks.libsyn.com and is a registered trademark of Demanzo Corps of Milan, Italy. All rights reserved. Back to the Bins is a proud member of both the League of Comic Book Podcasts, which you may find at comicbooknoise.com league, and also the Comics Podcast Network, which you may find at comicspodcasts.com. Take a moment to stop by their respective sites and support their other fine podcasts, won't you? Thanks, and we'll see you next week. 